Welcome to Excel Boats on the X Podcast, powered by Mud Buddy Motors. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. The only podcast to bring you insights on the world of hunting, fishing, and boating. With your host, J. Paul Jackson. You don't say much, do you? Rocky LaFleur. Yo, Adrian! And Frost Reeves. I'm a simple man. I like pretty dark-haired women and breakfast food. Now, load up and side in. This is On The X. Welcome to the Excel Boats On The X podcast powered by Mud Buddy Motors. I'm your host, J. Paul Jackson, and today I've got a really special treat because I'm joined with two of my favorite individuals from the outdoor and waterfowling world. Mr. Ryan Bassam with Sika. Now, Ryan is the waterfowl segment director for Sika Products. Is that right, Ryan? That's correct. Yes, sir. And I've also got the National Sales Director for Excel Boats and Mud Buddy Motors, Dave Reynolds, with us today. And if you listen to the podcast and follow us, you know we've had Dave on a couple times before. And, buddy, it's a treat to have you back here with us today also. No, it's a treat to be, uh, you know, asked to be on it again. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Now, your duck season's been in full swing. Are we keeping you out of the marsh right now? Well, no. Actually, I was planning on going this afternoon. I'll just have to go tomorrow morning. So when Ryan said I might have a, or actually Jason said I might have another podcast tomorrow morning, I told him I'd have to cancel on that one. But our season's been going on for a while. Actually, I saw Ryan uh, last Friday. We sure did. Uh, How did your hunt go, Ryan? It was good. We uh, we had a slammer of a hunt out of the layout boats and had a good time. Got some really cool footage and content that we've been building for uh, a sick of project so it was, it was great I, I need to come back down to utah again soon it was it was awesome good yeah that was uh definitely a good day for gore-tex it yeah was, no uh, steady drizzling rain jay paul actually a little more than drizzle probably about three four hours temperatures in the i don't know 30s mid 30s yeah we got and, some uh, for sure. pretty cold miserable the only thing colder more miserable is laying in a layout boat you know, with uh, no shelter, you're just facing the sky with that rain coming in on your face all day long. So hey, that's pretty hard. That's that, hardcore. Remember that day that we hunted there over by Antelope Island and killed all those green wing till? I did. And it started out drizzling rain and then pouring rain. And then <laughs> I think it was snow before we actually got off the water in 40 mile an hour winds. Yeah, that was a brutal day. Actually, we sort of got blown off the lake that day. Yeah, <laughs> we, we absolutely hammered it, though. Yeah, well, it was good to see you last week, Ryan. Glad you had a good hunt. You know, we hammered them that day, too. And for you guys that uh, have never hunted out of layout boats, if you'll check out the Excel Boats Facebook page here later today, I'll put up a photo from that day so you can see exactly what uh, Ryan and Dave are talking about. Hunting out of those, I guess you were hunting out of pumpkin seeds. Ryan, is that right? You know, I can't remember exactly. Uh, I think we we're hunting out of one of the old, um, gosh, what was the name of that? It's uh, Tony Smith used to have that company. Yeah, yeah. Bonneville, yeah, Bonneville, uh, Bonneville Layouts. It was, it was, we were hunting out a couple of those and yeah. made for a great hunt. Yeah, Jay Paul's hunting. Yeah, those are called pumpkin seed layouts. Right. Yeah, real low profile. And you've hunted with Tony Smith. Uh, we hunted with him out at uh, Antelope. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've hunted with Tony a couple yeah. of times. I've also hunted with him in Idaho. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're deadly. Deadly way to hunt. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Tony was with us that day. I'll see if I can't find a photo or two to, to share on our Facebook. I'll send one over to you also, Ryan. Perfect. So now you've been hunting there on the Great Salt Lake, Ryan, but you've also kind of been traveling all over, haven't you? I mean, you were in Alaska a couple of weeks ago. Tell us what you've had going on. 
Yeah, so um, I've I've been fortunate to kind of travel all over this calendar year. I, I started the year out in January um, on St. Paul Island in Alaska and the Bering Sea hunting King Eider and uh, got to come back and hunt a little bit more in Arkansas and then uh, chase the snows around and then uh, obviously took a little bit of a break and, and followed some other endeavors in, in the world of turkey hunting and some big game international trips and, and back at it hard again. We've uh, Our season here in Montana actually opened September 30th. And so we've we've been fortunate to be uh, getting after them pretty good, and uh, been to to Kansas and um, South Dakota so far this year on some other wing shooting adventures. So it's it's off to a good start. I'm telling you, those birds are they're cooperating almost everywhere we've been. So that's been good. Wow! Started September the 30th in Montana. Yep, we've we're hard at it, man. <laughs> we've got snow on the ground now, though, so um, things should start getting real interesting. I think it'll pick up again. We'll get another wave of birds in here soon. Well, that yeah. means we'll get more birds in. If there's snow That's in Montana, right. we'll get them right. in So yeah. next week, be ready. Be I'm ready. Getting ready. <laughs> tomorrow morning. I'll be waiting. Yeah, and talking about snow, we don't have snow right now, but we do have frost. Our buddy Frost Reeves has just came on and joined the conversation. What took you so long? Where the heck have you been? Man, this is why you don't eat fast food. Other than, you know, it kills you too, but I got like trapped in a fast food line for like 20 minutes and then I had to drive across our thriving metropolis here. So sorry about that. I see a sesame seed stuck in your tooth too. You need to get out of there. It wasn't Burger King. (laughs) (laughs) It was worse than that. Well, I'm glad you finally made it. So Brian's been telling us about globe trotting and how all of his travels and how it started out duck season September the 30th, which, man, that just amazes me. You guys in the Pacific Flyway are so dead gum lucky. I mean, you've got a 107-day season. You can kill seven mallards. Yeah. And you come in September the 30th. How yeah. cool is that? I mean, it's pretty awesome. I, I we don't need to tell everybody that, but <laughs> yeah, that exactly. <laughs> Try to keep it a secret, but you know, Utah secret. opened um, first week of October, so it's it, pretty good. It's good, but like I said before, you know, Pacific Flyway hunters have the highest divorce rate in the country. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Every flyway's kind of got that unique aspect to it, and Pacific Flyway uh, has a has a few uh, intriguing elements for the waterfowl hunter. So it's uh, it's a good time. No doubt. And I'll actually be out there in a couple of weeks. So maybe, you know, being that close to Montana, you can uh, slip back up to Utah and hunt for a day or two with David. If I can, I will, for sure. I would absolutely love that. I think it'd be a whole heck of a lot of fun. Oh, for sure. We'll have a good time. Or maybe you can even come up and see us. I mean, we may be rocking up here, too. We may just have to plan that out. You have some of that good spring creek hunting that time of the year, right? It can get pretty dirty in that warm water. In the small spring creeks. They'll, they'll load up. Those warm water springs, they, they can produce the green. There's no doubt about it. That'd be fun. I would absolutely love that. From what yeah. I understand, it's best up there, too, when the weather is absolutely the worst. I know I've got a, a bunch of sick gear. You know, tell me a little bit about what you suggest, depending on the temperature. Yeah, you know, um, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, the right way in which you can build your system and, and we can get really specific. I, I'm not, now would take a lot of time, but um, each waterfowl hunter up and down each of the four major flyways has their own specific set of needs. Um, so whether it be your field hunting or hunting in the timber, uh, marsh situations, river bottoms, whatever, 
uh, really we have a solution um, within our system building uh, to, to really outfit everybody. So the, the basic way to think about it, uh, the way I like to approach the conversation is, um, you know, depending on whether you're hunting in 80, 90 degree weather or all the way down to negative 40, like we did one day here uh, in December last year, um, you, you're still gonna wanna start with your next to skin layer. Uh, typically, I wear a, a lightweight merino that we make um, or one of our core lightweight pieces. And then from there, you know, again, depending on temperature, you'll, you'll put on um, an insulation piece. Um, and then from there, and that, that typically has our, our uh, Primaloft technology in it, and there's different weights of Primaloft. And then from there, you're gonna wanna go to our Gore-Tex pieces, which is our outer, outer layer pieces, and that's 100% waterproof. And so um, you can get as fancy with it or as simple with all that as you want. It really just kind of depends on the situation. Yeah, and I love the Gore-Tex too. I know you use it a lot out there, don't you, Dave? Well, yeah, actually, you know, we use more Windstopper than Gore-Tex because out west, you know, we're, we're dry out here. In fact, that rain that we hunted Friday, I can't remember the last time I hunted rain in Utah. It was probably three years ago. Really? We just hit it just it's right. It's really dry. You know, we don't get rain too often. So actually, Windstopper is probably the better material because it blocks the wind. It's highly water resistant. Sorry, Ryan, I'm doing your job for you. No, no, go for it. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, Friday was a Gore-Tex day, most certainly, but uh, most of the time I wear a windstopper. Absolutely, and that can that layers real nicely underneath the Gore-Tex. So, right. um, you know, like Dave was saying, Friday when we were out, um, the wind was blowing pretty good. We had a lot of moisture in the air, and, and having that windstopper layering piece underneath the Gore-Tex was perfect combination for that situation. And I think that's where some of the most confusion lies. And I've heard this question before. I've heard people commenting, I'm sure you have Ryan, that, man, I'm, I'm so glad I wore this Gore-Tex. I'm so warm today. I mean, this is keeping me warm. Where right. in actuality, Gore-Tex is a thin membrane and really provides no more insulation than your skivvies. Really, you'd be freezing Absolutely. your foot out. Yep. Um, it's actually, it's a waterproof membrane. It keeps you dry, it may keep you warm, for that reason, you're staying dry, but it provides no insulation. But yeah, I used to work at Browning for several years, and actually at the time, Browning had the exclusive for Gore-Tex in the outdoor, the hunting industry. Right, that's right, and I mean, it's- so Know a little about Gore-Tex. It's, it's an interesting technology, and a lot of people don't realize exactly how it functions. You, you spoke to it very well. Um, but basically, as your body produces moisture underneath, it will actually pull that moisture out into the surface of that um, face fabric. Um, while not allowing moisture to come back in. And so, you know, a lot of times when guys are putting out decoys and um, trying to get their spread set, you, you build up a little bit of heat. Or when you're packing in, um, you know, to, to a different hunting situation, you, you start to, to create some, some uh, perspiration. And, and this whole technology is, is designed to pull moisture away from the skin and out to the face fabric, which keeps you dry, which in turn will keep you um, warmer because you're not wearing wet clothing underneath and then keep moisture from coming back inside. So it's, it's a pretty amazing technology. Sounds like Dave knows all about it too. You he know does. Dave, with Excel and Mud Buddy doesn't work out? I, I do a lot of field testing. <laughs> yeah. Ryan, what we, need, what we need here in the timber is just some lower body stuff that completely keeps water out because as we all know, <laughs> all waders leak. Uh, waders, right? Yeah, yeah. but, yeah, yeah, but yeah. as we all know, all waders <laughs> leak. Brand new waiters leak, 20 year old later waiters leak. Right. So as long as it can just keep that puddle of water from, you know, <clears throat> freezing our feet too quickly, we're good. 
Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think there's definitely some room to come in and have a, a viable solution to that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like maybe good waiters. Yeah, I mean, that's a cool product. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, uh, you know, I like to think outside the box, but I've, I've had this idea for these waiters that don't leak. We'll with you on that. We'll yeah. focus on exactly what you're thinking, and, and yeah, okay. we'll, we'll take it down to the war room, see what we can come up with. It's pretty simple. Just water doesn't go inside them. I think that's a good starting point. Yeah. Water yeah. doesn't go to the inside. Yeah, it's tough, though. It's tough. And it's a basic concept that many have tried and many have failed. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be the unicorn for the industry. Yeah. <laughs> No doubt, no doubt. But you know, I, I guarantee if anybody can come out there with a waiter that's going to be 100% waterproof, and Frost is right, every dead gum pair I've had, the one thing's for certain about waiters, sooner or later they're going to leak. If anybody can make a pair that solves that problem, I guarantee you it's the guys at Sitka and at Gore-Tex. I mean, I have great, great faith in you. Look what you just did to camo. I just picked up my brand new boat this week. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of, of, as a brand, what Sitka really tries to accomplish. We, we try to identify problems within whatever your pursuit may be, whether it be waterfowl or big game or whitetail and, and use the technologies that we have at Gore and in, in finding a, um, a solution to those problems. So that the whole idea is to keep hunters out longer and, and safer conditions so they can be in the outdoors enjoying it more than, than maybe what they could have in any other type of product. And that's, that's our goal. We've got, we've got lots of fun projects going on. Well, I'll tell you, you hit a home run for sure with the uh, new Optifade Timber. Oh, I absolutely I like it. it. Oh, dude, I, I like it so much. Dave can uh, vouch for me on this, too. Uh, last week, I picked up my brand-new Viper F4 Excel boat in Optifade Timber. It looks good, too, because I, I got to see one um, recently, and I'm telling you, they're sharp. I love them. They look fantastic. Yeah, we sell a lot of them. You know, what's interesting about that timber optifade pattern, I, I get a lot of questions, you know, people are trying to figure out, you know, well, what does make it different? And, and what is that process of, of the optifade camo pattern? What does it look like? And, and um, I'll give you the, the, the shorter version, but we, we've had three different scientists consult with us on, on this. And, and it goes all into, you know, how do avian species um, differentiate color and, and depth of field and, and, and from their angle that a bird's coming in, what does that look like to, from their perspective? Versus designing it based on human um, um, eye perception, we, we do it based on what the bird itself is seeing. And so uh, when Timber was developed, we had three scientists work with us on it, obviously did a lot of infield application. And especially in, in your timber hunting situations, you know, what does the water look like when a bird's coming in at an approximately 45 degree angle? Um, whether there be sunlight or, or, or more shaded conditions, whatever it may be. And we've tried to replicate that um, in a way that doesn't um, blend you in to your surroundings, but makes you disappear. The whole idea is to make the outline of a hunter's um, body disappear and, into their surroundings. And a lot of the same concepts as, as uh, other digital camo patterns that the military uses and whatnot. So, um, you know, I think it's one of the more innovative camo uh, technologies out there right now for, for all those reasons I just stated. And, and I think it's done really, really well for, for most everybody who's tried it. So it's been awesome. It's been great. There's quite a story behind the pattern. You know, a, biologic, or a biologist and scientist and actually a military. That's right. 
Yep. We had three, three different individuals from each of those camps that, uh, and they actually consulted with us quite a bit on, on uh, the other uh, pursuits as well, not just waterfowl. And, and they're experts within their field. So uh, we, we find it best to work with the best that are out there and, and that gets our consumers what they need and, and, and vice versa. You know, all of our, our great partners that uh, have Optipate as well, like Excel Boats and Mud Money Motors, it's, uh, it's awesome to see the, that, that technology um, go beyond just apparel. You've certainly done a good job with it, I'll tell you. And looking at the factory last week at the number of boats that we're turning out in Optifade right now, it's unbelievable. It, just about every camo boat there was an Optifade boat. Of course, we offer other patterns, but you can tell that uh, that's exactly what the consumer's looking for right now. So kudos to you guys for doing such a great job. Appreciate that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even our you know $30,000 bay boats. Tricked out fishing boats. These guys want them in Optifade camo. Absolutely. And, and you know, here, here's what interesting. I, I I didn't touch on this, but sometimes the name Timber Optifade is, is a little uh, confusing, but we've seen this camo pattern work incredibly well in Utah. You know, hunted out of a layout boat. It works very, very well. I've hunted I it. wearing that Friday. Yep. I mean, it's, my, my little boy asked, why is he wearing Timber pattern? And it's first. It lays out, it, uh, it blends in better with a layout boat. Yeah. Absolutely. Same, same thing in sea duck hunting. Any, any sea duck hunting and diver hunting conditions, typically that, that pattern's just as good um, as in a timber hunting situation. So it's versatile. It goes beyond just what the name uh, tries to designate. Early season Utah, it's ideal. March yeah. is a little darker. It definitely. Later in the season. Based on what I've seen, absolutely. Better, but yeah, timber's great for early season. Good. Cool. Well, man, we've really enjoyed having you on here with us today, Ryan, too. You know, hearing about all your hunting trips. And by the way, now you have another venture uh, besides your gig there at Sitka. Speaking of hunting, you want to tell us a little bit about that while we got you here? Yeah. So uh, um, my family has been in the travel industry for um, over 40 years. And and that's honestly what what uh, has allowed me to, to be able to pursue different um, species of animals and birds kind of all over the world. And, and so recently, uh, a few years ago, my dad and I, and my wife started a company called Trophy Expeditions, which is a booking agency of sorts. And then my good friend, uh, Ramsey Russell and I, um, I've been a consultant for him in his business, which is getducks.com uh, for the last five or six years now. And so uh, basically what those businesses do is uh, we take calls from hunters that are looking to go on that hunt of a lifetime. And, and uh, we, we match them up with the best hunt that's out there, uh, whether it be uh, New Zealand or Africa or Mexico, Argentina, Peru, anywhere in Canada, Europe, you, you name it. We've, one of us has been there and experienced it and, and uh, we can handle all the travel and um, you know, additional non-hunting tours, depending on what somebody wants to do. So we, we kind of pride ourselves as a one-stop shop. We can do the travel, booking the hunt, um, you know, aiding and, and importing trophies back into the U.S. And, and all the things that most people don't think about. So that, that for the guys that are only going to get to do this once in their lifetime, we, we want it to be, you know, seamless and, and a flawless experience that uh, they can truly appreciate. That's pretty cool. So well, if somebody wanted to use your services, where do we go? Yeah, so um, for big game, trophyexpeditions.com um, is, is a good place to start. You can kind of see what's available. Uh, for the waterfowl side of things, getducks.com is another great resource to see what haunts are available out there um, and, and where you can go. And for all of our travel services, that's under All World Travel. And um, best person to call, I, I tell everybody, call mom. And it's, it's actually my mom that, that handles it. <laughs> 
travels is like call mom mom always takes care of you you can call her mom if you want but if you get in a pinch she's available 24 7 and no matter where you're at in the world she can get you out of there so it's it's kind of a nice uh plus to have on your side okay well thank you very very much yeah, man you. we appreciate having you you're a wealth of information um hopefully we'll have you back on here I'd in a few you. more weeks That'd be great you always bring a whole whole lot to the table when you come around appreciate that appreciate it a lot yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a blast. I, I always love talking duck hunting with you guys. So anytime. Well, listen, last week, you know, we launched the uh, brand new series here, or relaunched, I should say, the On The X podcast. And of course, you know, that was made possible by you guys at Excel and Mud Buddy. And uh, we appreciate that greatly. But we also were talking a little bit about a couple of different topics that we said we were going to cover a little bit more today. And since we don't have Rocky on here with uh, Frost and I, and since you've been duck hunting almost every day, we'd yeah, like to pick your brain a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure you noticed that um, the pintail bag limit nationwide dropped from two birds to one this year. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Especially even more interesting is they've already set the limit for next year at two. Yeah, so... You wonder if it was sort of a knee-jerk reaction. You know, out here in Pacific Flyway, you know, we see a lot of pintail. And so we don't see a big, notice a big decline in numbers. There could be, you know, nationwide, but, you know, obviously, and especially in California, um, they get a lot of pintail. So it was pretty interesting, especially after you read all this research that bag limits really have no impact on overall populations or more on mortality so i'm not sure where that came from but it is what it is and uh we just have to you just have to pick out a nice uh, bull sprig now you have to be selective and <laughs> shoot one well you know if you take a look at the waterfowl report this summer i know i was consulting the du website um actually this year even though the pintail population is 27 percent below the long-term average we were actually up 10 percent over last year so yeah, I mean that you know, I'm having a hard time find you figuring out why you cut the bag limit in half when the population has made a gain, and now we don't even know what the populations are going to be next year. But um, no, you're right, and good. they've already said it at two. Yeah, so that, that's a uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how they uh, came up with that uh, reduced bag limit. But. Who knows? That happens, that happens time to time. You know, we uh, we have a tundra swan season here in Utah, and you know, quite a few years. The tundra swans are you know more and more every year. In fact, this fall we had the highest number of um, tundra swans in the area, sixty thousand. I think that's the most they've ever recorded in Utah. Yet, you know, several years ago they reduced the uh, the bag limits, uh, cut down on the season. Um, cut down on the area where you could shoot swan. And, uh, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. Other than, the, you know, there was a lot of pressure from um, the swan huggers, I guess you want to call them, um, that were concerned that trumpeters would be harvested. And it was, it was more of a compromise. Well, um, if you've seen both of them, I don't know how anybody could mistake a trumpeter for a thunder swan. Because first of all, Every time I've ever seen them, and I've seen a bunch of them in Ryan's state of Montana, um, and also uh, out in Nebraska, that with the trumpeters, 
you hear them most of the time before you see them and they make a very, very distinctive noise. Yeah, they do. They're much larger, more distinctive noise. And a lot of times they're uh, painted. There's a big red splotch or pink splotch on their back. I've seen a few out here in Utah where they uh, get a hold of them and paint them. Um, and, but you know, again, that might, be, make it, that might make it more of a target. Well, wow, look at this duck. He's a you know, swan. He's red. <laughs> so, I don't know, you know, it, in Utah, if, you, if uh, there are 10 or more trumpeters harvested, then they could close the swan season for that year, for that particular year. But that's never happened. Wow. But potentially, the season is predicated on people making mistakes. Correct. That's correct. Well, they just yeah, don't pay all the A few years ago, they killed one. And, uh, and you know, you said they're, they're hard to distinguish. I mean, it's easy to distinguish between the two. But when the trumpeters are by themselves, you don't have a comparison. So it is not that easy, uh, and especially if they come in quiet. You know, they just look like a big, and we, we have to take classes in Utah before you could um, get a permit for tundra swans. Identification, it, it's a pretty, yeah, extensive class and, and test. Well, not a class, it's more of a test. But in any case, my buddy shot one several years ago, and uh, he, he thought he had a tundra until he, he took it to a taxidermist, and taxidermist turned him in. <laughs> what that cost him? <laughs> oh, he talked his way out of the court for the reason that you know, it is hard to distinguish between the two, especially when they're flying by themselves, and they are making noise. You know, they, they look like a big, big tundra at times. So he he got out of it, but it happens. Wow. Well, they need to just paint them all to match frost beard red. <laughs> there you go. Be beautiful. <laughs> So I guess I was off on a tangent talking about the pintail. So maybe there was a, uh, you know, a pintail hunger, hugger in the crowd that uh, helped make that decision there. I don't know. <laughs> well, I just thought it was very ironic that we see the numbers increase, but then we see the bag limit decrease. And um, what's even more ironic to me was Delta Waterfowl and their most recent issue had two articles that to me seemed to be totally opposed to one another. One was the plight of the pintail, and the uh, author, you know, went to great lengths to talk about, you know, nesting success and how poor it's been and what the numbers are and how the pintail is 27% below the long-term average or the LTA. And uh, in that exact same issue, there was another article that proposed, and uh, I see Ryan nodding his head. You may have actually read this, that proposed going to what they called splash limits. Did you see that? I do remember reading that. Splash. Is that ducks you can only kill over the water and splash? <laughs> so you can't field hunt them then. <laughs> <laughs> that opens a whole different can of worms. I didn't even think about that possibility. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and Ryan, you correct me if you got something different out of this or if I'm wrong. No, I mean, and I just read it briefly. Honestly, I, I, I meant to go back and, and dive into that a little bit more, but you, you probably have more info on it than I do because you probably read the whole article. So I need to go back. Actually, I, I did. And, you know, I will uh, summarize. I'll give you the cliff notes. Sure. Um, it didn't say anything about hunting them over land, Dave. So, no, splash limits were uh, not about uh, no, uh, no dry field here. hunting. Um, but the splash limit that the authors deal was, hey, a lot of people have trouble uh, distinguishing between the different species, you know, and, and there is some truth to that. I mean, you take, uh, you know, a, a scalp and a ring neck, 
Right. Very, very similar. Redheads and canvasbacks are often difficult to differentiate from one another. Now, I don't know how. Well, actually, you know, a pintail, if he doesn't have a sprig, unless well, you look for that. Yeah, hen pintails, they're very difficult. Um, in fact, there's probably more hen pintails mistakenly shot than any bird here. For and, sure. Yeah, just a little star. I was hunting with uh, Al Trout, who manages the Bear River Refuge one year. And we had a good afternoon. It was stormy. We were getting a lot of shooting. And some guys down from us kept on dropping these pintail. I mean, one after the other. And, and finally, Al said, okay, this is enough. He went over to these guys and he wrote them a ticket. They obviously, they had over their limit pintail. He came back, we were hunting longer and uh, another group of birds came in. These guys dropped two more ducks, two more pintail. They had just gotten a ticket and 10 minutes later, they dropped two more pintail. What was their story? Yeah. Al just shook his head and he's like, okay, well, you know, these guys are hopeless, but <laughs> Any case, you know, there there are it is uh, a yeah, hen pintail can be mistaken for gadwall, headwit, uh, hen witching. Oh, no doubt about that. So, so the art the author of the article his deal was, hey, let's just go with splash limit, and once X number of birds have hit the water, you're done. And you know, I, I thought it's just very very strange for an organization like Delta, which by the way I love Delta waterfowl, so please don't misconstrue that. Um, I think both Delta and DU have some positive things they bring to the table for all of us as waterfowlers. But, you know, you've got on the one hand, oh, we've got to reduce the pintail bag limit to one, even though most scientific research tells us that until you get way, way, way low on duck numbers, we as hunters, you know, the mortality that we impose on a species is insignificant compared to predation, a lack of nesting success, and a myriad of other factors but you know in that very same magazine you've got one talking about the plight of the pintail and the other guy saying hey let's just shoot whatever the heck you want and when five splash down you're done did that seem a little strange to you ryan i i mean i think so i mean you know coming from a, a conservation-minded organization like sick gear i think that uh there's a lot more science behind it there's a lot of variables that i think most people don't even in realize it goes into the whole thought process by, behind these things and, and i don't know i mean you know i've been in situations where sure i could have i could have shot you know i could have sat there and shot 20 30 canvas bags if i wanted to but there's a reason we don't do that and and i think um I think it's good to force ourselves as hunters as well to, to really um, take some accountability for, I mean, we should be able to identify birds on the fly. I mean, I, I wasn't great at it growing up or when I first started duck hunting, we all, we all start as rookies not knowing what we're doing and that's fine. Um, but we should have pushed ourselves to be able to identify those birds. I mean, the, the great success of, of most of the, the bird species and big game species in this country has been hunting through conservation. And, and I, I think it's, we should push ourselves to be able to identify those birds correctly and, and, and manage the resource appropriately. But that's just my personal opinion. So yeah, um, I agree with you, Ryan. I mean, you know, as hunters, we should be experts in the game we pursue. Absolutely. You're an elk hunter, you're an expert in game habits, so, you know, elk habits and uh, know how to identify them. And, and that's part of the intriguing thing of waterfowl hunting. Definitely. So gear intensive, decoys, calls, equipment, dogs, and then there's the identification factor, identifying the ducks on the wing, um, you know, and, and when you're good at it, you could have, you know, pick out uh, drakes and, uh, you know, nothing's more rewarding than that. I Having agree. a good hunt and be able to identify the ducks, 
and select the ducks you want to shoot and come out with a, you know, a beautiful bag limit. Absolutely. I, I agree completely. Yeah, I do too. And I'll tell you, I've got one other thing I'd like to add there also. You know, for any guy out there that thinks the splash limit is a really, really good idea, um, and we'll, we'll talk about this. We're going to save it for the next podcast. But, Ryan, you opened up a really good topic when you mentioned canvas backs. You know, right here we've got a species that we have under a million birds nationwide and i don't have the figures right in front of me i'm going off the top of my head but i believe that our overall canvasback population is somewhere in the six to seven hundred thousand bird range right now and that is a species that you definitely can impact with hunter mortality for a couple of reasons um, and if you're listening out there and you want to know more about this, you need to Google the canvas back a little bit. But there are two things that come to mind when you're talking about canvas backs. Number one, under a million birds, a population that we can affect with hunter mortality. Number two, and a lot of people don't know this, but over 50% of the nation's canvas back population winners in Louisiana, almost all of those birds in the area of Catahoula Lake. Yep. So let's say you've got a four bird splash limit. Yeah. Man, I've had many days on Catahoula. You're nodding, Ryan. You know exactly what I'm okay. talking about. Yeah. A bunch of days down there when you didn't see anything but canvas backs. Yeah. Now, that makes it a premium destination if you're looking to harvest a bull can. So, you know, all the Pineville, Louisiana Chamber of Commerce, there's a little plug for you guys. But <laughs> it is a great destination if you're looking for canvas backs. But I think the biggest problem with the potential splash limits is the fact that there are some species um, and the pintail could be one of those also because we're below the long-term average but definitely you know you could uh, affect canvas back um, a couple of different subspecies of scalp so I, I think that we do have to keep the bag limits by species yeah. i agree i think they're going in the wrong direction i mean that's quite a contrast from the old uh, you know point system you know, where you're allowed 100 points, and yeah, if you're uh, at uh, 80 points and then you shoot a 30-point bird, you get a, a, a ticket written for it, you know, it, it, uh, from one extreme to the other. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the point system is something else we've covered before here on the podcast, but it's something worth revisiting. You know, I'm going to take a look at the uh, canvas back numbers. Frosty, you hadn't said a whole heck of a lot today. Uh, Sorry, I, I was I... reading those articles. <laughs> <laughs> Which I do have one thing. I mean, if you read that Delta article, um, one of their conclusions is that with pintails, it really, it ends up being more of a, you know, it, it is a conservation thing. And their conclusion is that it has a lot to do with crop rotation in Canada. And, you know, they're now, um, they're used to nesting in these fallow fields and now they're nesting in this just bare stubble. So they're way, way more subjected to predators. And, and I just, you know, you think about um, trying to, I mean, anyone who's done anything in that kind of conservation knows, you know, the hurdles that you're gonna come to and trying to get, um, trying to get farmers to change what they're doing just based on pintail populations is obviously a huge hurdle and and to me it just seems like well the the easy far far more tangible option is just to reduce the bag limit 
And even though they've got to know that right. that's not, you know, that's not the heart of the issue, it is far easier to just say, okay, well, it's one instead of two, instead of trying to convince a bunch of farmers that they need to be planting a different crop. Definitely. And that's what I was saying earlier too, Frost. You know, I mean, there's so many variables to the equation we don't take into account, whether it be predator control or or how ag practices are changing and how that affects breeding grounds and nesting grounds. I mean, it, I mean, yeah, I just, I agree. 100%. Well, and something else I found interesting in the article is they were uh, pointing out that in Canada, there's no farm bill equivalent like we have. Right. And so um, they've got, there's no, there's no deterrent to, uh, wet you know wetland draining and the, and that's something they're having um and dealing with and that's part of the problem too there so you know it's a lot it, that's a big big you know yes. cyclical problem when, exactly. you, when you start talking about hey it's it, it has to do with far more than just hunters and ducks this this is a way bigger deal this is a cycle it's just proof of how everything affects everything absolutely yeah, no doubt about it. And I mean, you just opened up a whole can of worms. There's so many tangents that we could go on, but you know, I want to save a couple of them for the next go round. And another one uh, that you just mentioned was the cycle uh, and weather cycles frost. And that is a major, major player in what happens with the duck populations. A lot of people don't realize that. So, you know, you didn't do very good on your homework this week, by the way, Frost, that you're just sitting there. You're kind of like the kid that comes to class, sits in the back corner silently, and he's doing all of his math problems as quick as he possibly can because he didn't get it done the night before. So before well, we come on the, next time. It's actually the second time I've read the article, or third time I've read the article. And uh, so rather than just stare at your faces while you're talking, I thought I'd be a little more constructive and read it again. <laughs> I thought it was just because you're a slow learner. <laughs> no, no, I'm bad at a lot of things, but come on, give me some credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, guys, it's been great having y'all on here today. Um, very good podcast. And for everybody out there listening to, uh, in addition to downloading us through the iTunes store, be sure to go to Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com and find our podcast. It's on the X.Podbean.com. And follow us on there. We're going to be doing some things to uh, get some more information out there. Also, if you take a look at the Excel Boats Facebook page a little bit later this evening, I'm going to throw up a couple of photos from a previous hunt with our buddy Dave there out of the uh, layout boats there. And Ryan, I might even throw up a pick or two from a trip I did not long ago to Montana. Yeah, because absolutely. You are. I know you don't want to share in all this stuff and a lot of people beating your door down. Sure. By the way, Montanans, did I pronounce that correctly? I believe so, yes. All right. I've never seen a group of people so freaking protective. I mean, man, every time I post pictures, somebody threatens to like slash the tires on my truck for letting out what a great secret right, for duck sure. hunting in Montana is. But yeah. I try well, to tell everybody that I live in Miami and that the duck hunting is great. It's just, you know, the winters are harsher than they, they imagined is all. <laughs> yeah, Frost, you were about to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, if you lived in Montana, you'd be protective of it too. You live in western Tennessee, so, you know, there's not a lot to protect. But, <laughs> man, if you were in Montana, you'd be. 
I hear you, brother. Yeah, that's well, God's country up there. Utah is a little too many people in Utah. <laughs> True, but a lot more hunters in Utah. A lot more competition. A lot of tire slashers in Utah too. I'm sure. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that alone. I don't. Want I wouldn't to do that. I'd just let the air out of your tires, Jake Paul. I wouldn't slash them. <laughs> I appreciate that, brother. You always got somebody's back. I hear you. Yeah. Well, you can check out our Excel Boats Facebook page later today, and we'll throw up some photos. And uh, guys, enjoyed having you both here. Frost, thank you for joining us. Sorry we didn't have my buddy Rocky LaFleur along, but hopefully he'll be around next week as we come to you again. And really hope you enjoyed this edition of the Excel Boats on the X podcast powered by Mud Buddy Motors. <laughs>